0: Won't you pray with me, please? And Lord, we're we're grateful to be here this morning. We thank you even for the rain, uh, Lord. We we're reminded, even as we joke about it, of your promises and your word that you are you are trustworthy, and you have you have not, uh, since the days of Noah, gone back on your word and destroyed the world uh, by flood. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. that's seen even in the restraint that you show in judgment so god we uh we submit ourselves to that great love and that great mercy and we recognize lord that you are still a god of justice and so lord we submit ourselves to your holiness this morning we pray that you would change us that you would draw us close to you and you would drive uh, the truth of your word deep into our hearts and uh, and make it come alive in us we pray in jesus name amen In your bulletin, there is a survey that some of you have already completed. And that's okay. But I want the rest of you to take it out, please. You can also, if you're so inclined, I know some of you in today's world, and I have no problem with it, some of you uh, follow along during the sermon on your phone or a tablet. And we've got an online version of this survey, too. You can go to our website, you can see it behind me, and tap on the resources section. And then from there, down at the bottom, there's a little thing that says to participate in our Bible engagement survey, tap or click here, and you can do that, and it will pull up something. Our guys are working on this. They're phenomenal in the back. They're working to pull up what it actually looks like online. You can can fill it out, or if you want to be really fancy this morning and feel like you're really technological, then you can do that online, and that's what it looks like. And so, uh, so, either way, I, I want you to participate this morning. Let me walk through these questions. And the purpose for doing this really is to just get an idea of where we stand with our engagement individually and as a church with the Bible on a regular basis. So, look at the, look at the, the question. Just give me your age bracket just so I kind of know. I'm going to work through these things uh, this week and in the coming weeks. And, and just, I'm curious as to which age groups do what. So, there again, I'm not asking for any names. This is as anonymous as I can make it, but give me your age group there if you don't mind. Then, how many copies of Scripture do you own? Uh, just how many do you own? You see that there. Some of you own one, uh, some more. Uh, I did not, uh, and, and I should have now that I think about it, put maybe you don't own a copy. You can write none out to the side, and that'll be fine as well. Which version do you use as your primary Bible for reading? Now, those are all abbreviated, the NIV for New International Version. HCSB for the one that I preach from on Sunday mornings, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the KJV, King James, New King James, New American Standard, or New Living. Now, those are just some of the more prevalent ones, and so I've left there an opportunity for you to write something else in if you use a different translation primarily for your uh, your Bible reading. I'm not talking about just what you follow along with in here, but what do you read from if you do? Did you select that translation for yourself, or did someone else pick it for you? And what I mean by that is, did you go with some translation in mind and buy that particular one, or did you take the recommendation of someone else and say, yeah, I'll just get that one because they selected it, they recommended it for me? What was your process there? And then number four, in a typical month, do you attend worship, read religious books, attend Sunday school, read religious magazines, volunteer at church, circle any of those that apply? Not just one there, but any of those. Just kind of seeing the correlations here, it's what I'm going for. How often do you read to or listen, or do do you read, rather, or listen to the Bible? Is it daily, a few times a week, once a month, more than once a month, or rarely, or never? Number six, I desire to please and honor Jesus in all that I do. Be honest. Again, anonymous survey, be honest. Maybe you agree. Yeah, I do, or maybe, no, I'm not really that worried about that. Either way. Throughout the day, I find myself thinking about biblical truths. Is that often for you, sometimes, seldom, or rarely, or never? you're thinking about things from the Bible, truths from the Bible. Then if you flip it over, there are a few more questions. I believe the Bible is relevant to my daily life. And this is talking about how practical and relevant is it for you. Do you agree with that or disagree? And again, be honest. God's not going to strike you down this morning. If you say disagree, I really right now don't think that the Bible is relevant for my life. Just be honest. The Bible is the authority for my life. And again, be honest in that. Agree, yeah, it is absolutely the authority for my life, or no, I I have to say it's not. When I am tempted to sin, I often rely on and circle any of these. My relationship with God, engaging scripture, prayer, other people, accountability, remaining focused, Christian radio, church, or what else do you depend on or do you rely on when you are tempted to sin in whatever temptation uh, attacks you? I read a survey this week that for men, the majority of temptation comes in sexual form. For women, the majority comes in other forms. And the leading one was gossip. <clears throat> now you're going to talk about me as you leave church, right? Now, that, again, it comes in different forms. And whichever temptation you may face, how do you deal with that? And then number 11, what are the top three reasons you don't read the Bible more often? Just write some answers there, just short uh, if you don't have three, that's fine. If you got 15, you spend a little time, I guess. But, but give me your top three. Why is it that you don't read the Bible more often? Everybody's got reasons. I'm sure if we go around, everybody will say, well, it's because of this and this and this. Some of them very uh, legitimate, we'll say. Others, you probably say, well, that's not a real good reason. But just tell me anyway. Why don't you read the Bible more often? And then number 12, what are the top three reasons that you do read the Bible if you do? Why do you read it? So top three reasons you don't, and then the top three reasons you do. Now, those require a little bit of writing, so maybe you need to come back to that. I want to continue and finish uh, the next couple of questions. Which of the following, if any, help you to desire and to accomplish the reading of the Bible? Is it following a plan, like a yearly plan or something like that? Dedicating a specific time to doing it? Some sort of devotional guide? The accountability of friends or a spouse? Or is it something else? What, what there is that? And you can circle any of those. Uh, it's not just a one, one, um, one answer there. You can circle as many as are, are helpful. And then finally, number 14, and circle as many as are applicable. How do you typically hear from God? Through prayer, other people, the Bible, circumstances, feelings, answered prayers, signs or miracles, music, church, Sermons or Bible teachings, dreams and visions, nature of the Holy Spirit, what else? What, what other would it be? Circle as many of those that are applicable. Now, here's what I'd like for you to do. I want you to get to a stopping point and, and complete that. I want you to fold it in half, and I'm going to have those things collected. Brent, Roger, if I could ask you guys to help me just for a second. If you wouldn't mind, when you get done with that and you complete it and fold it in half, just pass it to the center. Just down the aisle, nobody's going to stop and read all your answers, all right? And, uh, and our, our guys will come around and collect those. There are some other offering plates down below uh, here in the communion table if you want to grab those uh, or collect them in your hand either way. But pass those to the center if you don't mind. And if you didn't get finished and you want to give it to me on your way out, that's fine too. But I want to make sure that I get these. Those that uh, were, if you're working online on that, it'll be submitted and I'll get an email about it. All right, so that's fine as well. Um, and I'll, I will I will hopefully get as many of these as, as possible. So pass those to the center if you're finished with it, and if not, hang on to it and give it to me if you don't mind as you leave. All right, very good. Thank you very much. And like I said, if you're still working on yours and you're trying to come up with those top three or 50 reasons why you do or don't, read the Bible, then uh, you can give that to me later, uh, and uh, I would appreciate it. Thank you, fellas. I came across several different surveys in the last couple of weeks that I was looking at to prepare this one, and it's interesting the results that you get from something like this. Now, of course, this isn't a fully scientific survey. It's a small sample size, and it's a selective group that's just right here. So I'm not looking to prove necessarily anything with this survey. But what's interesting is that in national surveys like this, what's indicated is that most Christians really do believe that the Bible is God's Word and that it is vital to their everyday lives. That's what they believe. And yet, at the same time, most Christians fail to interact and engage with the Bible on a regular basis. Few do it daily. Some will do it weekly. Most are probably monthly or rarely. And so there's a disconnect, as you can see, typically among Christians in what we think and believe about the Bible and its importance to our lives and what we actually do with it. But there remains the very legitimate proof that the Bible has life-changing power vested in it by God. And we know that it can change the lives of those who read it, those who believe it, those who submit to it, those who obey it. So we have this disconnect. You see what I'm saying? You, You agree, just like Brent, you agree, amen, that the Bible can change your life. And yet, probably many of us in here indicated, I don't interact with it daily. I think it's important, but there's a disconnect. So my goal with this series is based somewhat on that premise, to close the gap between what we believe and know about the Bible and how we actually engage it. So my goal is that each of us, individually, and that collectively as a church, that we will become rooted in God's Word so that we're nurtured, fed, and grown by it, to produce the fruit that's commanded by it, by the grace and for the glory of the one who wrote it. That's my goal. So I want to teach you what the Bible is, even if you already know. I want to teach you why you need it, even if you already believe you do. And I want to teach you how to get it into your daily life, even if you read it every single day. I think that I want to make sure that I take nothing for granted as your pastor that you know or don't know about the Bible. And so this series will generally be about the Bible, but it will be very specific and I hope, I hope, anyway, very helpful. I want you and I to become like the people that are written about in Psalm chapter 1. Let me read this to you. How happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. What is the Lord's instruction? The Bible. And he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. I'm sure you'd like to be a person just like that. That you are planted deep and you bear fruit in your life and there's evidence that God is working and you you don't wither. And whatever you do is blessed by God and you prosper. The wicked are not like this. So here's the counter to this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not survive the judgment. And sinners will not be in the community of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. The way of the righteous, the Bible says here, is to meditate on the Scripture day and night, to make it a part of your life so that you bear fruit and are not blown away like those the Bible calls are wicked. So that's my goal, is for you and I to become those kinds of people. Now, our focus scripture for the next few weeks will be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And that's where I want you to turn with me this morning, if you've got a Bible handy. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. As you're getting there, let me give you a little bit of background information on what's happening here as we'll pick it up in verse 14. Paul, the apostle, is nearing the end of his ministry, the end of his life, and he's writing letters, he writes two in particular, to a young pastor Named Timothy, Now, Timothy at this time is probably about 40 years old. Paul's about 60, and he's passing on his knowledge to this younger man in ministry who needs to know the truth of what Paul is saying. Timothy had been mentored by Paul, and so he's certainly going to cherish these letters. He's going to take them to heart. He's going to learn a great deal from them, as can we. Paul, so far in his letters to Timothy, has told him how to lead the church. He's told him how to come against false teaching. And now, in these verses we'll see this morning... He's going to confirm the importance and the power of Scripture for this younger pastor. At the beginning of 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells Timothy that difficult times lay ahead for those who believe in Jesus. And in particular, he says it's going to have a major effect on those who are leaders of Christian people. And namely, in this particular book, 2 Timothy, Timothy himself is a pastor. It's going to affect him in some ways. So what is Timothy supposed to do? Look with me in verse 14. 2 Timothy 3, three fourteen. 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing those from whom you learned, and that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How is Timothy to react to the difficult times and the problems that he's going to face as a pastor and as a Christian? He is to continue, Paul says, in the scriptures. Continue in what he has learned. Don't deviate from what God has already told you. So this provides a great challenge, but also a great encouragement to Timothy. He already has everything that he needs to face the times ahead. And it's found in the scripture. Over the next few weeks, these verses, 14 to 17, will serve as our foundation for this series. We're going to look at, at how we should read the Bible, how should, we should be rooted in it, how it plays out in our lives. This morning, we're going to focus on the very first part of verse 16, where it says, All Scripture is inspired by God. We're going to be guided by that little statement over the next couple of weeks. We'll look at the origin of Scripture, the Bible, this morning. We'll look at the reliability of the Bible next week, the authority of the Bible next the following week. Then we're going to move to the rest of verses 14 to 17 and look at the benefit of Scripture. What does it actually do in everyday life? Now, along the way, this series will be eight weeks, I'll just tell you up front. It will include lots from 2 Timothy, and we'll also, we'll look at how to receive the Bible through personal study. I'm going to preach a sermon, actually, also on how to listen to a sermon. How about that? And we're also going to look at the attitude that's required for us to take the Scripture to heart and see it play out in our lives. That, that one on how to listen to a sermon will be interesting. You better be listening. So I want to give us this morning really just some foundational stuff. I, I, I don't want to in any way just give you a bunch of knowledge, but I really think that if we're going to understand what the Bible is, why we need it, and how it can get into our daily lives, we got to have some foundational knowledge. I want to give you three terms that I want you to know that I'll refer to throughout this series that you may have heard before that are, that are certainly in Scripture, and the first of which is the word revelation. Revelation. Now, I'm not talking about the New Testament book of Revelation, but I'm talking about the idea that revelation, the revealing of God by himself to us, is what Scripture actually is. Paul says all Scripture is inspired by God. So by Scripture, we mean the Bible as it was known during that time and as it has come to be known, complete with the Old Testament and with the New. So the Bible is the self-revelation of God. Different, the Bible is different from His revelation in general in nature or in your conscience or in human history, how God has played it out. The Bible is what's known as special revelation. In word, here's what God wants us to know. We, We don't have everything. I'll just tell you this. We don't have everything there is to know about God in the Bible. That doesn't mean it's incomplete. That just means God told us what he wanted us to know about him, and that's enough. We do have enough to see God's plan of redemption and salvation for the world. We do have enough to understand what it means to be saved and how we must receive Jesus by faith. We certainly have enough for that. But God ultimately is unsearchable. We don't have everything. In fact, John, at the end of his letter, at the end of his gospel, rather, said about Jesus, I guess all the books in the world couldn't hold all that Jesus was about. And so we don't have everything, but we don't have anything that's incomplete, only because God has shown us what he wants us to know, giving us enough for, his, for him to accomplish his plan in our life. Now, the revelation of God, this unveiling of himself, began in the Old Testament and is completed, in word at least, in the New Testament. And so what we have is a progressive revelation. So you can't read in Genesis and expect them to know all that we know by the end of Revelation. It builds on itself. The New Testament completes and confirms and fulfills what's written in the Old Testament. So it's progressive. Both go together and both are the revelation of the Scripture of God. The second term to know is inspiration. I'm not talking about the Chicago song, You're the Meaning in My Life, You're the Inspiration. Some of you, that was your song back in the day. Maybe together that was a song for you and your significant other. You're the meaning in my life. You're the, Peter Cetera, he just belted it out. Maybe that was you. But I'm not talking about something that just gets you fired up or creates warm fuzzies inside of you. That's not the inspiration that Paul here when he says all Scripture is inspired by God. That's not what he's talking about. Other versions probably put this in terms that are more easily, uh, more easily give us a, a, a sort of a mind uh, picture, a word picture other versions will say all scripture is breathed out by God or is God breathed. You kind of get the idea that God is breathing life. He is actually giving us what he wants us to know. What does it mean that all scripture is inspired or breathed out by God? Let me give you an official theological definition. You ready for this? This Stuff I had to read in seminary. Inspiration is the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit on the Scripture writers which rendered their writings an accurate record of the revelation of God or which resulted in what they wrote actually being the Word of God. The Spirit of God works by directing the writer to the thoughts or concepts and allowing the writer's own distinctive personality to come into play in the choice of words and expressions. In other words, God called certain people to write down what He wanted us to know. And he used his Holy Spirit to guide those people to write what he wanted us to know. And in the process, and this is, I think, the most amazing thing about Scripture. In the process, God used the personalities, the experiences, the language, the the skills of each human writer so that Scripture comes to us as as an inspired divine document, but also written by humans. You think about the incredible process. God did not simply just dictate, write this in every circumstance in Scripture. Certainly we know there are things like that in Scripture. But what God did is so amazing that He took the the personalities and the influences and the experiences of those people that He called to write Scripture and He used all of that when He inspired Scripture. So there's a divine and a human aspect to Scripture as well. Paul says that all Scripture is inspired by God. Now you realize if you're if you're astute in any way about the Bible that when Paul is writing this, the New Testament hadn't been completed yet. It was in the process of being written and compiled and recognized as scripture. So so initially he is referring in and immediately to the Old Testament. At the same time, by implication, the New Testament is also included in this idea of all scripture because we see in several verses, 1 Thessalonians 1:5, 2 Peter 3:16, 1 John 4:6 that the New Testament writers really did believe they were writing the words of God. They really did believe they're writing scripture. So this verse all scripture is not just about the Old Testament, but also about the New. The Old Testament certainly was recognized as scripture and had been for several for several centuries. But Paul here also by implication is talking about the New. Now what's interesting is that this idea of inspiration was not permanently attached to people like the Apostle Paul. In fact, there are a couple of letters that Paul references in his his letters to the Corinthians, a couple of letters he references that did not make their way into Scripture. So inspiration was for specific times and specific words and specific letters and books. Not everything about Paul was inspired. Not everything that Paul ever wrote or said was inspired by God. We need to know that because It was the Holy Spirit who came upon him during that time and did not give him a lifetime card that says, I am inspired by the Holy Spirit. Whatever I say, you must listen to. And we have problems with that in our world today. There are some denominations that believe, and some branches of Christianity that believe that certain people are infallible and inspired by God for all time for everything that they say. Simply not the case. Not in the New Testament, not in the Old Testament, not today. But what is written in Scripture that we have certainly is inspired. Not everything that those people wrote was included, but what is included is what God breathed out. And because of his activity in it, the Bible is living and active, it says. It's powerful for anyone, anywhere, in any time. It's not just an old, dead, dusty book. Because God is involved, because God wrote it, it's alive and it's active. The third word is the word canon, C-A-N-O-N. Now, this is not something you shoot, okay? D- just understand, this is an old word that simply means rule or standard. So when we talk about the canon of Scripture, it is the recognized rule or standard or collection of books that are, that are recognized as being the rule or standard of our faith. There's a set of books that's recognized then as the, re- the revealed, the inspired, the complete Word of God. It includes both the Old Testament and the New. Some basic facts about the Bible. Some of you know this, some of you don't. There are 66 books in the Bible. Make some notes if you want, a little trivia for you. 66 books in the Bible. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. The the Bible was written over a period of 1,600 years. The Old Testament ends about 400 B.C. and the New Testament is completed, not the events necessarily, but the writing of it completed around A.D. 100. The majority of the New Testament writings completed long before then. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew and Aramaic. The New Testament is written in Greek. It's interesting that when you begin to think about this completed set of books recognized as Scripture, why did the, the people in the early church even need that? Obviously, there was recognized the Old Testament that was standard, but why the need for a New Testament set? There's a guy named Dr. Elmer Towns who is the the Dean of the Seminary at Liberty University, and he he writes, and this is not a unique list, he just compiled it. Why was a set needed, why was a set of, of New Testament books needed? It's pretty interesting. One reason was that they already had an Old Testament, and since Jesus had shown up and there's a new covenant, well, we need a New Testament. We need a collection of books about Jesus. And so that's what they did. Also, everybody wanted a copy of the writings of those who, who were eyewitnesses to Jesus and his life and his ministry. And as those apostles began to die, people said, I want a copy before they're gone. Give me a copy of what they've written. The churches also began to widely use these books, uh, these writings from the Gospels and from Paul. And so they wanted to collect them together to have one set that they could use in the church. There was also a growing uh, controversy over false teaching about Jesus, telling things that he wasn't really about or that he didn't really do or whatever, false truth. And so a collection of scripture, a rule, a standard was needed to come against all of that. There are also other books that we'll talk about in just a minute that arrived on the scene that claimed to be the word of God. And so a standard, a rule, a canon was needed to say, no, those are unbiblical. Those are not scriptural books. Those are uninspired. And also later on, as the first century A.D. uh, develops and later on up until about the the early to uh, mid-fourth century, What we have is persecution of the church, and the people needed to know which books to die for. They needed to know which book is actually a word from God, and I will die to protect that book. Because why die for something that didn't come from God? So they needed to know that. So how was that determined? How was it that people knew this is God's word? They already had the Old Testament. They understood that. It had been believed to be God's word for for centuries. But what about the New Testament? It's developing. How, How do we know? The process actually is interesting. Uh, it wasn't determined as much as it was recognized. These books are the Word of God. There was no council, no vote that was taken. It was not a democratic process. I vote for these books, and I vote for this, and I don't vote. It was a Holy Spirit process. The people simply recognized which books were truly inspired by the Holy Spirit. How was it then that they came to recognize that? What were the the conditions, so to speak, by which a book was recognized? Well, one of the conditions was that it was connected to someone who was an eyewitness to Jesus Christ, to an apostle. If you trace the the New Testament, each of the books is connected in its authorship to someone who was who was an eyewitness to Jesus or was was a direct friend or associate of one of the apostles. For example, Luke is associated Luke and Acts associated with Paul. Mark associated with Peter. Matthew, of course, was a disciple himself. John, a disciple. And so you have all of these who are closely associated with an apostle. And also, the, these books claim to be the Word of God. Just like the Old Testament, these books claim to be. So there's internal evidence as well. Also, there was the authenticity of authorship. that the person who claimed to wrote it actually did write it. There was also proof of life-changing power. When these books were read by individuals or in the church, it changed lives. And they, they began to say, well, <laughs> it has to be the Word of God. Because you can't have your life changed by something that's not from God. You may be inspired for a few moments or a few months, but nothing can do in you what the Word of God can do. So these books began to be widely recognized as the Word of God, and also they were consistent in their teachings with the rest of Scripture. They didn't come from left field. So that's essentially how the early church began to recognize which books were part of Scripture. Now, some may ask, why aren't other books included? You may say, well, I know of some branches of Christianity, namely Catholicism, that has other books in their Bible. What about those books? I want to answer those questions very directly. Uh, Those books are called what's known as the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha, A-P-O-C-R-Y-P-H-A, Apocrypha. Those books include uh, titles such as Tobit or 1st and 2nd Maccabees, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Epistle of Barnabas, others like that. Why were these rejected by the early church and then later included by those in those branches of Christianity? Well, uh, Dr. Towns, again, just lists some that that these are widely known um, reasons. They're generally weak in style and organization. What they betray is that a human author was on his own writing these things. There's not the organization and the style that you see in the rest of Scripture that the Holy Spirit was involved in. They also contain several errors that would not be included in regular Scripture. they are also Old Testament in nature, but they're written in Greek. The, The Old Testament written in Hebrew, New Testament written in Greek, so there's a disconnect there. Why, if they're so stylistically Old Testament, why would they not be written in the same language? They are not quoted by Jesus or any of the New Testament writers. These books are not quoted in any way by, those, uh, by Christ or by the New Testament writers. Also, they're, they're, the plan of salvation runs through the entire Old Testament but is not clearly seen in the books of the Apocrypha. There's also no Messianic prophecy in the Apocrypha. They don't foretell, like the Old Testament and the prophets do, they don't foretell the coming of Jesus. Also, these books, the Apocrypha, were not included in the original Hebrew Bible. Now, they were, just so you know, interestingly enough, included in the 1611 version of the King James Bible. You realize that? They were included in that. King James, of course, producing this, wanted to make as many people as possible happy and included them. Uh, Updated versions, by the way, and none of us, even if you are a KJV-only person, that's fine, none of us, none of us have what is the original 1611 unless you have the Apocrypha included. Uh, Also, the spiritual level is low in the Apocrypha, meaning that that Christians, as they read those, did not feel as if they feed the heart like the rest of Scripture does. It just didn't seem to be that they were anointed by the Holy Spirit. Also, the Apocrypha implies teaching that's contrary to Scripture. And this is important to note. This is one major reason why in uh, in Protestant uh, faith, in in the Bibles that, that we have, we would not include the Apocrypha. This is one major reason, because the Some of the teachings are very contrary to Scripture as a whole. There's some unique stuff only found in there, such as Last Rites, Purgatory, and Praying for the Dead, only found in those books. So they're inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. And they weren't included in in the collection of Scripture until the Council of Trent in 1546, which, of course, was the Catholic response to the Protestant Reformation. So again, those are some several reasons why those books are not included as recognized as the inspired Word of God. So all of that to say, those are some foundational things. I don't want to give you a lecture that you're bored with or anything like that, but I think it's important, and I want to take nothing for granted that that you know or don't know. It's important to understand what we have is the revelation of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, used through human authors, and it's complete and it's collected and we have a standard of our faith. That's what we have in the Scripture. Let me give you some, some quickly some basics about the, the Bible's origin that will reinforce that and expand on it just a tad. First of all, the Bible is God's Word. I don't want you leaving here misunderstanding that whatsoever. You say, well, that's not news to me. Good. I'm glad it's not. Have it reaffirmed in your heart. And in your mind, believe it once again that the Bible is God's Word. And if you have not ever believed that before, I want you to come face to face with the fact that that's what the Bible is. It is not some random book. It is not some good teaching, the good book. Not at all. It is God's Word. So it is by Him and also from Him. You see those first two there. By Him and from Him. No other book is. What an incredible gift we have from God. It's by Him, so it reflects His perfect and His unchanging nature. What He revealed and inspired is true, and it's trustworthy because it comes from God Himself. And it's from Him, meaning we have absolute truth that you can bank your life on, and it never changes whatsoever, and it's applicable to anyone, any place, and any time. The Bible gives us several reasons to be confident that it actually is the Word of God. One of those is that it claims to be word of god. Now you can't totally prove that it is the word of god by saying it claims to be the word of god. That's a circular argument. But at the same time, there are over 3,000 references in the scripture that claim that this is God's word. Thus saith the Lord, as the King James says, or thus says the Lord, or here's what God has to say if you're using a paraphrase. That statement is is over is mentioned over 500 times in the first 5 books of the Old Testament and over 1,200 times in the prophets. Thus saith the Lord. It is clear that the Bible claims to be the Word of God. There's also another proof that's the fulfillment of prophecy. Names and events and things that happen, and Jesus, His life, His ministry, His suffering, His death, His resurrection, all foretold in the Old Testament and confirmed in the New. There is great proof that we have something from God because who else can predict the future but God? There's also the the power of the message, that it has the power to convict, to convince people, to convert them. The Bible possesses life-changing, life transformation power for those who will receive it. It's also, another proof is the infinite nature of its message, which is so this, this is fascinating to me. Do you realize that the Bible can be understood by children in a Sunday school class? By those who are illiterate if they hear preaching. And it is also absolutely impossible to understand and know every single thing about the Bible. It is infinite but it's understandable. It's understandable, but it's unsearchable, just like God. That's proof that there is God's character all over it. Also, and this is a very interesting point, there is a unified message to the book in spite of it being written through various and very diverse human authors. The unified message centers on Jesus Christ from the old crescendoing into the new. It's a unified theme of God's plan of salvation for humanity. It's a unified structure, so that if you take one book out, you're missing a major piece of the puzzle. The Bible must be complete together, and that's how God designed it. There's a theologian from years and years ago named Arthur Pink, and he said this, The Bible is contrary to what one would normally expect from a book that was written by authors in the circumstances in which they wrote. It was penned on two continents in three languages— over a period of 16 centuries, rather, in different locations, in different circumstances, and by people of various educations and vocations. Yet despite this, the Bible is one book, and in it is an unmistakable organic unity. It contains one system of doctrine, one plan of salvation, and one rule of faith. That is amazing. You try to collect over 1,600 years the writings of very diverse people, and see if they all fit together in one theme. Only the Bible does that. And it's proof that it is the Word of God. There's also an unmistakable honesty in the Bible. And this is one of the things that I think some Christians may struggle with. If the Bible were invented, so to speak, by by people, they probably would have been a little more flattering to those who are in it. They probably would have left out a few of the sins of God's heroes. But you realize... That God's heroes in the Bible are on full display, good and bad. That Noah got drunk. That Abraham lied about his wife more than once. Moses was full of pride at the beginning. That Eli was undisciplined and had wicked sons. That David committed adultery and had a man murdered. That Solomon had 300 wives. So there are insane people in the Bible. One is absolutely enough for me. Praise God, she is more than I could ever, ever ask for. One is enough. Amen? Elijah ran scared from Queen Jezebel. Peter denied the Lord. Thomas was a doubter. And Paul (laughs) is introduced to us first as a persecutor of the church. There is is absolute honesty in the Bible. God holds nothing back to show us who he is and what we are. (laughs) There's also a uniqueness of the message of the Bible that proves that it's so different from other religious teachings. You realize that other religious teachings and their books and their, their claim on Scripture tell us what we've got to do to earn the favor of God. You do this and God will be happy. You do this and you'll receive salvation. You do, you do. You, 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 all that you can do, you muster up your strength. You realize what the Bible says is that Jesus did it all. He did it all. He paid the penalty. He also forgives our sin. He was raised again to give us eternal life, and all we must do is receive it. We don't have to do anything. We receive it from Jesus Christ. Other religions say, do this and you'll live. Christianity says it's done by Jesus Christ. It is absolutely unique and proof that it actually is from God. And then finally, there's the test of experience. You know if you are a person who has been changed by the power that is invested in God's Word, you know it's the, it's the Word of God. You have no doubt in your mind that it absolutely possesses the life-changing power of God. So there is proof that it is from Him, it is by Him, that it is His Word. It's also, make no mistake about it, it's about Him as well. One of the worst mistakes, and I'll tell you this and we'll get to this in a few weeks, one of the worst mistakes you can make when you read the Bible is to immediately ask, what does this mean to me? If that is your first question, let me just tell you, take a time out. That's not the question of Scripture. What does it mean to me is way over here. I have to start with what does it say (laughs) about God, about people, about whomever. What did it mean to those who first received it? What did they do about it? What principle can now be applied universally? And as a result, what does that mean to me? you understand that the Bible is first and foremost about God. It is His story, and the central character is God Himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It describes His actions from eternity past, His, his actions in recorded history, and His actions in, in eternity future. He gave it to us so that we can truly know Him, because without the Bible, we cannot truly know God. We cannot find God on our own. So he revealed himself to us. We can know things about God. The Bible says we are without excuse because of what God has proclaimed throughout his creation, throughout history. And yet the special, specific things about God are found nowhere else but in Scripture. From the Bible we learn about the nature, the character, the actions, the will, salvation plan of God. From the Bible we learn that we cannot uh, know everything simply from nature or from our conscience or from studying human history but we get absolutely all that God wants to tell us about His greatness, His power, His love, His justice, His grace, and His offer of eternal life. It's about Him, first and foremost. But it's also through humans. As I said, inspiration involves dual authorship. Because of that, because the personalities and the experiences are used by the Holy Spirit through those human authors, we have a Bible that's personal and honest and trustworthy. Trustworthy. That's realistic about the human experience. God understands us. And so we have a Bible that recognizes both our deepest needs and also provides the means to meet those needs because we can't do that within ourselves. It's through humans and it's also to humans. The Bible is written to us so that we may understand it and apply it in our lives. We are meant to receive it, to believe it, and to obey it. So why does that matter? Why does it matter? Why do I tell you all this stuff about the inspiration of God's Word? Because the very foundation of our faith depends on having an inspired and dependable and powerful Word from God, our Creator. Without it, we have no foundation. Without it, what we live is a lie. Paul even said it, that if the resurrection did not happen, we're not just living good lives and oh well. Paul said we're to be pitied up all that we've given up to follow this man who is a liar, he says. <laughs> but if the word of God is true, and we've leveraged our lives toward what really matters. Jesus is known through the Bible. The New Testament records his life, his ministry, his suffering for us, his death on the cross and his resurrection. Because the Bible is the very word of God, displayed in jesus christ in the new testament it's reliable it's trustworthy you can build your life on it it's it has authority it has power it'll change your life it's beneficial and it's practical for everyday living and it must be either rejected or received so what do you do now before anything else and i want to make sure to clearly articulate this as best i can before anything else before you go dive into the bible you You will not interact with the Bible on a spirit-to-spirit level with God unless the Holy Spirit resides within you. It will be a mental exercise for you apart from receiving new life by faith in Jesus Christ. Apart from Him, you may read the Bible and get a nice little lesson. But when His Spirit resides in you, it will absolutely change your life. God has provided, as I said, everything we need for salvation. Sin is an absolute offense to God. He cannot tolerate it. And only a perfect person could die for the sins of the world. So God came himself. Lived a perfect life and died for you and me to extinguish all of our sins and to provide for us new life and eternal life forever. But it's not automatic. It must be received through repentance and faith, through surrender to Jesus Christ. So that's what you do first. You make sure... But beyond any shadow of a doubt in your mind and spirit, that I have surrendered my life by faith in Jesus alone. And then we begin to close the gap between what we say we believe about the Bible and what we actually do. If we claim to bank our lives on the Bible, then we've got to interact with it. We've got to read it and obey it. So this week, here's your assignment for this week. I want you to increase your Bible engagement by one day this week. So if you're at zero, go to one. If you're at 1, go to 2. You guys are really good at math. If you're at 2, you go to... <laughs> you guys are good. You're still awake, too. You're good. Increase your Bible engagement. I'm serious. By one day. You may say, well, I'm already doing it every day. Good. Keep going. But I'm not assuming that everybody is. So increase your Bible engagement by one day. And as you do, pray that God would, would by His Holy Spirit, help you understand what He's saying. That's called illumination. That's called the Holy Spirit helping us to understand. And and as you read and engage the Bible, submit to its authority for your life and make the necessary adjustments. When you read something that says, here's about God and here's what it means and here's what I need to do as a result, And make those adjustments. Set your course for this year, for 2013, to be the year that you consume the Bible like never before. Again, my goal is for us individually and collectively to be rooted in God's Word So we can be nurtured and fed and grown by it, to produce the fruit commanded by it, by the grace and for the glory of the one who wrote it. It will change your life. Let's pray together. Maybe some here this morning who need to submit their lives to Jesus for the very first time. You recognize the power this morning of God's word and the truth as a result, that is there about Jesus Christ. That He is who He says He is, the Son of God, the only way for salvation. And maybe this morning, you say, I need to give my life to Him. I'm tired of running from Him. I'm tired of of knowing I need forgiveness. God is chasing me and I feel it this morning and I submit to Him. There are no magic words that you need to say. The Bible simply says that if you believe in your heart that God is... Jesus is who he says he is, that God has raised him from the dead. If you'll confess with your mouth that he is Lord of my life, you'll be saved, the Bible says. So this morning, I just ask you, will you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Will you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead to give you new life? Will you receive his grace by faith this morning? I'd love to be able to speak with you about that. But I'm not going to embarrass you or call you out. If at the end of the service here in a moment you'd like to come down and pray with me, then then please do. Or maybe you're a person who says, you know what, I just simply need to submit to the authority of God's word in my life. And that's my commitment this morning. I want to pray for both groups and then we'll close. Lord Jesus, for those who need to surrender their lives this morning to you, I pray that you would not let them get out of here without doing so. That today would be the day for their salvation, for their surrender. Lord, for those who need to submit to the authority of your word, I pray today that you would break down the barriers of pride and you would bring us to our knees in front of you, submitting to the authority that you've placed in your word for our lives. Make us different. Make us people, Lord, who are rooted in God's word. We pray in Jesus' name.